Hey everybody, welcome to Regardless, You've Got This. I'm your host, Skylar Sorkin. Say hello to the syllabus for your 20-something soul. The syllabus you never received in college is finally making an appearance. This podcast will inspire you to create your very own 20-something syllabus, ultimately guiding you towards your sole purpose regardless of self-doubt and what others think. Alrighty, let's just get to work. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another Regardless episode. I am so, so excited for this one. Um, With that being said, let's just get right into it and please give a warm, warm welcome to Lori Santos. She is a Yale professor, a TED speaker, and the podcast host of The Happiness Lab, one of the most popular podcasts out there. Lori is a professor that has really studied the science of happiness and found that many of us actually do the exact opposite of what will truly make our lives better. And based on the psychology course that she teaches at Yale, the most popular class in the university's 300-year history, The Happiness Lab with Dr. Lori Santos, she will take you through the latest scientific research and share some surprising and inspiring stories that will change the way you think about happiness. So For all of us 20-somethings out there and older, we need this and we need you, Lori. So what we are talking about today, it's no surprise that we are going to be chatting about happiness. This is your Happiness 101 class. So welcome and welcome, Lori, to Regardless. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I am so excited. Um, So I'm really just, I'm energized to get right to it. Um, And you know, as Regardless is really targeted towards 20-something-year-olds and in this period of our life, there's a tremendous amount of noise and also a lot of experiences of the unknown. And a lot of us don't even know if we're on the right career path, what we're doing. Some of us are in really serious relationships. Some of us are not in relationships. Some of us are getting out of them. And we're still kind of in this time of getting to know who we really are. So really as a Yale professor, Lori, surrounded by 20-something-year-olds, what are your thoughts on the psychology of 20-something-year-olds? Like, what do you think are some of the main challenges that we face? What do you see the most of? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, the, in some ways, the happiness challenges that we see in 20-somethings, you know, mirror in a lot of ways the, 20, the happiness challenges that we see, I think, in other ages. But yeah. I think, you know, within your 20s, you're, you're doing a lot of things, right? You're trying to figure out, like, what is this path that I'm on in terms of my career, in terms of my, like, family life or relationship life? I think there can be really a lot of uncertainty. Um, and I think it's the time when you really are, are trying to, to build the life that you want. You know, we all mm. want to have a, a good life. We all want to have a happy your life. And I think the 20s are the time when you think you're really, you know, putting in the work to build what you want to be doing, you know, in your 30s and your 40s yeah. and so on. And so I think it's a time when it's all the most important to know, okay, what are the kinds of things that will make me feel happier? Again, not just in my 20s, but in my 30s, 40s and 50s and so on. And I think one of the main challenges is that what we know from the research is that our minds are constantly lying to us about the kinds of things that will make us feel better. You know, there's mm-hmm. things that we think we need to get in terms of our career success in terms of our financial success, in terms of our relationship success, that we predict, you know, if we got those things, we'd be not just happy, but kind of happily ever after, like game Mm -hmm. over and I'd be done. And the, the research really suggests that first, those things 
often don't work in the way we think. Our circumstances don't matter for happiness as much as we expect. Um, but also that there's relatively little that we can do, little, little, few places we can arrive at that will make us really feel happy for good, right? Happiness is always going to take a little bit of work. It's always going to take a little bit of effort. And so I think clarifying, you know, where we have those incorrect intuitions and putting into practices things that will allow us to overcome those intuitions can be particularly important at any time, but especially during our 20s. I couldn't agree more. You're absolutely correct in the fact that we think, oh, if we have an amazing job or we have the perfect relationship or we get married and we have kids that will be happy. And so it's like, how can we start to practice those activities or, you know, do the self-work so that we can be happy regardless of those things working out because they may not work out. Yeah. And I think one of the things, you know, one of the things researchers do is they really, you know, try to ask whether those intuitions that we have are correct. So for example, you know, if I achieve financial success, will I be happy? Um, the answer on money and happiness is a little bit mixed. I think it's worth saying, I think sometimes we're like, you know, money doesn't make you happy, but money definitely makes you happy if you're not making any money. Right? Like yeah. if you yeah. can't put food on the table or you're living below <laughs> totally. the poverty line, yes, getting more, yeah. I'll be happy. I think that's not said enough. Like we all need universal basic income. We should go for that. Um, but what the evidence suggests is if you're living a reasonable like middle class income um oftentimes getting more money isn't going to make you as happy as you expect you know we predict that at any salary level if we just got more we'd feel happier mm. and the evidence suggests that that's just simply not the case you know right now really what the evidence suggests is as the less money you have, the more money you get, it helps, but it kind of all levels off at around $70,000, $75,000 in the US right now, um, which is a lot. You know, many 20 yeah. year olds aren't making that. But even if you're making a little bit under that, the, the evidence really suggests that getting more, you know, it's not going to do what you expect, right? And even things like having a little bit more free time, you know, having the time that allows you to engage socially with the people you care mm. about, like that might matter a lot more for happiness than having lots of money. So, that's kind of the money domain, you know, let's take the relationships domain. I think yeah. a lot of us think if I could only get married, I would be happier. Um, what does the evidence suggest? Well, the evidence suggests that like right when you get married, you get a little bump in happiness. Like people totally. are, are very, very happy just about when they're going to about to get married. But that boost that you get in happiness seems to level off pretty quickly within mm. like a year of getting married. Right. So the idea is like investing in these relationships you know, again, there, there are ways that you can have relationships that make you happy. This is not to say never get in a relationship or totally. don't worry about getting married. <laughs> it's just to yeah. say that the, this this thing that we put in our minds of like, oh, when this finally happens, I'll be done. It's just wrong. Mm -hmm. This is what researchers call the arrival fallacy. Like if I arrive at this thing, if I get married, if I get this job, you know, if I, you know, it's just not going to do the work that we think. And I bet a mm -hmm. lot of 20, the 20 somethings listening to this have had that experience before. You know, I bet so many of you, you know, when you were in high school thought about like, oh, if I could only get into college or if I could get into the college I want. And yep. some of you might have had the experience of getting into the college you want. And like, yeah, that felt good for a moment, but it wasn't mm. like done. Like wears you're off, off just, you just wears off and you're off chasing the next carrot, right? Like you're climbing yeah. the next rung on whatever, you know, academic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's worth reflecting on these moments that we've had before that taught us like, Nope, not not going to work that way in the way I think. Um, and finding ways that you can invest in the stuff that really will work to make you feel happier. Yeah, I think that's absolutely so valid. Um, and I think it goes back to like, if this, then that thinking as well. We're like, mm -hmm. if this, then I'll be happy. And it's almost like each 
year or like even in your 20s, like you're going to maybe wanting to achieve like a certain amount of maybe like salary or you're wanting to get married at the end of your 20s. But then after that, you know, it's all perspective. Then you're in your 30s and you want to have kids and you're in their 40s and then it's grandchildren later down the road. So I feel like in life, there's always moments of where there's another carrot. So Mm -hmm. it's like, how can I be okay with this carrot now and know that there's going to be more carrots down the road? But like, what if it's getting down to the point, like, what is happiness? Like, can you define that for us, please? Yeah, well, I think, you know, researchers tend to think, researchers in the field tend to think of happiness as as kind of having these two parts as sort of being happy in your life and being happy Mm -hmm. with your life. So being happy in your life is that you have a decent ratio of positive to negative emotions. It's not to say you have no negative emotions. I bet we'll talk about this. Negative emotions turns out really important for living a good, purposeful life. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But you want the ratio to be like decent, right? You want to have like, you know, more good than bad, right? That's being happy in your life. Yeah. Um, Being happy with your life, though, is a sense that, you know, all things considered, you're really satisfied with your life. Mm. life. You think your life is going good. Your your life has meaning and purpose. And I like that definition of having the two parts because I think there are lots of points in our lives when those things dissociate. You know, if you're working on a big project at work or, you know, if you've just had a new baby, right? Like there's, Mm -hmm. there are times when like, you know, there's meaningful things are happening in your life. You're really satisfied overall, but in the trenches, like, you know, you're sleepy deprived or you're feeling right. And we've also seen, I think a lot of 20-somethings have seen the opposite, you know, balance too, right? You know, just think of your Instagram feed where it's like somebody's has every pleasure, you know, in their life, but with their life, they feel kind of empty or they lack totally. purpose, things like that. And so, you know, best case scenario is that you're engaging in practices that boost both of those at the same time. Yeah, I I absolutely totally agree with that. And going back to what you said about just social media, I mean, there's a lot of noise especially as 20-somethings that we're exposed to. And even just getting into that comparison mode of maybe seeing others who look a certain way or look happy or look like they maybe they've achieved that carrot and things are just coming so easily to them and maybe happiness is easy for them. Mm-hmm. But it's like how can we kind of keep our eyes on our own paper almost in our own road instead of having to compare ourselves to others on social? I mean, it's, it can be extremely exhausting. Yeah. And I think it's a fundamental feature of human nature that we you know, are prone to comparing and, and mm-hmm. the fact that these comparisons really can, can mess with our sense of how things are going, even when things are going objectively well. Um, one of my favorite examples of this um, comes from the Olympics. It was actually a study okay. done at the Olympics. Um, you know, so you're, you know, you like, I don't know, win the like, you know, swimming competition. Yeah. You're like you're a gold medalist in swimming. You're like Michael Phelps or whatever. Are you happy? Yeah. Winning the gold medal feels mm-hmm. great. Right. What about being a silver medalist? Now, you might think, objectively speaking, the silver medalist is, you know, second best in the world. They've beat billions of people. They should be, you know, maybe not as psyched as the gold medalist, but pretty, pretty you know, psyched. Um, but it turns out they're not. If you analyze their facial expressions, they're showing um, emotions like contempt, disgust, mm-hmm. sadness, dread, um, anger, just like really negative emotions, right? And you might ask, like, why? What's going on? And you say, well, it's it's social comparison, right? They're not comparing themselves against any of the billions of people they beat to get there. They're looking to the one reference point, mm. the one comparison point that makes them feel terrible. Like they could have got gold and they didn't do it, right? So that's, you know, that's the silver medalist. But then you might say, well, what's going on with the 
the bronze medalist right there yeah. you know like they should feel even crappier right but if you analyze their facial expressions what you see is that they're showing true joy and in some cases are showing facial expressions of happiness that are even brighter than that of the gold medalist wow. so you're like what's going on well it turns out that the bronze medalist has a different social comparison they're not comparing themselves against gold because they were like you know multiple people multiple points or seconds or whatever away from it yeah. they're comparing themselves against another very salient reference point which is like if they hadn't done what they did or if they were just two seconds off or whatever like they wouldn't even be up there at all they'd go home no. completely empty yeah no metal so they are stoked they're just like this is amazing i'm so excited right and i think this both tells us something about the the nature of social comparison that like you can literally be second best in the world and feel like like awful like truly awful right but it also gives us a hint for how we can get out of it um mm. and the joke that i tell my students is we shouldn't look for the silver lining because the silver medal is not so happy we should look for like the bronze lining right we should yeah. find comparisons that you know make us feel a little bit better to remember and so mm. i think if you're in the thick of this and you're on instagram and you're looking at people's you know bikini photos of vacations yeah. You're on like LinkedIn. You're like, oh my gosh, everybody's more successful than me. Like, there's yeah. a moment where you have to think, like, am I being the silver medalist? Am I just looking to the other people that have gold? Mm. Like, or could I look to any number of literally billions of twenty-somethings who are in mm. a worse place than me? You know, they're not posting it on social media. This is one of the reasons social media is the worst for social comparisons. People totally. are curating what they post, right? Um, but with a little bit of work, you can look, right? There are enough people who are struggling right now that I think if you try to broaden your horizons, you could recognize that you are, at least objectively speaking, in a very privileged place. That's really helpful. Um, I needed to hear that for sure. <laughs> so Lori, thank you. And I think it's also, you know, comparing yourself, like what I, what helps for me is thinking like where I was personally on an individual level, where I was last year and where I am now. Mm -hmm. To me, I've grown immensely. But if I start to get into that self-comparison mode, then I feel like shit because I'm comparing myself to people who are not even on the same playing field as me. That's right. Yeah. And another thing to know about social comparison is that it it's insidious in that it, it tends to figure out the the spot where you're worst and find a reference point that makes you feel bad. Um, you know, in the midst, you know, I get so many interesting, cool, super cool opportunities as a you know a person who studies happiness. Yeah. And one of those super cool opportunities is I got to consult um, for an NBA team that I was oh, that's can't, sick. Just, can't disclose which one, but it was in the middle of the bubble. You know, the players are just bored; yeah. they have nothing to do. And so I was doing these like mini happiness classes. And one of the things they all wanted to talk about was social comparison. And so we were going through like, you know, if you're an NBA fan, like, you know, what are the comparisons? So who's like, you know, the reference point for, you know, like three point throws and everybody's like, oh my gosh, Steph Curry, or who's the comparison point for like earning the most money? People are like Steph Curry. But then I was like, who's the comparison point for like height? Like what's the right height to be in the NBA? And nobody said Steph Curry, who's kind of short for NBA player. Yeah. They said like, <laughs> they like Taco Fail, who's like the tallest, you know, guy in the NBA. And I'm like, well, why is Steph not the reference point for that too? Like mm. you said, he was the reference point for everything else. It's like, oh, well, we don't even like think to compare ourselves against him for that because he's not like the best. Mm. And so that I found really powerful because you know, it shows that we're not picking these reference points even objectively. We're just, our brain finds the one that's going to make us feel the worst, right? And so when you realize yeah. your brain is doing that, I think you can start, you know, hacking how, how much you believe these comparisons, how much you put intentional work into finding alternative comparisons. Um, you know, I think we, we can start to kind of engineer these comparisons to allow ourselves to feel a little better. I 
Love that. I loved how you said the word hack, actually. That was really, really smart. Um, And I think a lot of these things ultimately are hacks, right? We have intuitions that lead us in certain ways, but, you know, those intuitions aren't our destiny. We can, you know, through little, you know, simple tips and simple hacks, try to change, Mm -hmm. you know, how we think, how we behave so that we feel a little bit better. Absolutely. And it's really, I mean, it's really easy to constantly feed into the fear or feed into the side of us that is like screaming and pointing out all of our insecurities. And so it's like, how can I pause in that moment and immediately switch to find, you know, kind of the way out or the light? Yeah. And I think, I think what what we often, our assumptions about happiness are that we have to you know, really put these huge changes into our circumstances to Mm. feel better. I need to switch my job or get a new relationship or, you know, move to a different income bracket. But in practice, a lot of the things that we will really move the needle on our happiness are are simple behavioral changes, Mm. simple mindset changes that matter a lot. Do you mind sharing maybe like a couple that seem relevant to you? One of the biggest, I think, happiness hacks that we could all engage in is to get a little bit more social connection. Every available study of happy people suggests that happy people are more social. They spend time with their friends and family members. And that's true even if you consider yourself an introvert. I mean, you know, being socially connected doesn't mean like going to huge parties and amphitheaters full of people. It means calling that one friend that you really care about that you haven't, you know, invested a lot of time yeah. in recently. Um, I mean, I think that's just a huge one. And, and it's especially important to remember that we need to do that when we're kind of feeling crappy, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we know social connection matters, but like I've had a long day at work, you're just tired. Like, you know, my instinct is like, I'm just going to plop down and watch something crappy on Netflix totally. or I'm just going to scroll. I, I, I can't even like figure out a Netflix thing. So I'm just going to like plop on Reddit and scroll or like yeah. Instagram or something, yeah. right? But that's the time that we really need to put a little bit of work in, you know, kind of go through the friction of contacting somebody, you know, setting it up so that we can really get some social connection. Um, Another big happiness hack is just doing nice things for other people. And I think this is also something that the culture doesn't teach us well, especially I think 20-something culture. I mean, these days it's all about like treat yourself, self-care, self, self, self. But if you look at at happy people, happy people aren't self-focused. Mm. They're really other-oriented. So control, controlled for income, happier people give more money to charity than not-so-happy people. Mm. And there's lots of experiments where you just force people to do something nice for somebody else, say spend five or 20 bucks on somebody else. And what you find is that that actually ends up making you happier than if you spent yeah. the money on yourself. Um, you know, So just these simple behaviors where we're mm. getting a little bit more other-oriented can be incredibly powerful. Um, another big hack that we can engage in is, is a sort of a mindset hack, which is that we need to develop more of a mindset of gratitude. Mm. Um, you know, the simple act of appreciating what we have, you know, counting yeah. our blessings. Sounds simple, sounds like common grandmotherly wisdom, but like, you know, you c- can be common wisdom without being common practice. And I think- totally. Especially in our 20s, that's not, you know, next time you get together with a friend, you know, over a glass of wine or a beer or something, I bet you don't talk about all the blessings that you have at work. I think you talk about the hassles. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I know I do this, like I'm older, but like, you know, I vis- see friends and I don't mention any of the amazing people at my office. I mentioned the one person the ones, that yeah. drives me totally <laughs> crazy, right? And totally. so, and, but that's not what like happy people tend to do. Happy people spontaneously bring to mind, mm. you know, the blessings in life. They, they're not 
automatically thinking of all the hassles. And, you know, you might say that's great because they're happy, but then what you do is you just, you know, put some intention into thinking about the mm. blessings, you know, this act of having a gratitude journal or a gratitude list, just writing down a few things you're grateful for. Turns out it can significantly improve your well-being in as little as two weeks. Just this simple act wow. of noticing and listing the things that you're grateful for. Like, um, can you imagine if we were able to just sit down, like even on a Sunday night and be like, for this week, I'm going to incorporate, even if it's three times a week in the morning for like 10 minutes, I'm going to sit down with my five-minute journal and write down maybe the five things that I'm grateful for, for those three days even. And then even, you know, doing things for other people. Like you can even do that once a week or twice a week. And I do agree with you. I think on social media and especially in the 20-something world, there's so much like self-love, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And like self-care or this is my routine. Like it's a lot of self, which is awesome because we need to focus on ourselves in order to get back to others. But there is this gap and not enough information or attention on to how can I help others mm-hmm. at all. And I think one of the, you know, just really practical tips is like, yeah, you know, especially if you find yourself doing something for yourself. Um, like literally the very thing you're planning to do for yourself, think about if you could do it for others, right? Mm-hmm. So I've had this, like, you know, I'm having a really bad day and I'm like, you know what, like, I'm just going to go get a manicure today. I just need some self-care. It's like, wait, that's a moment where you're like, I was about to spend money on myself. It's not that it's bad, but it's like the data shows that if I were to do, you know, so like call your sister and just like send her a gift card for a manicure or do that manicure with a friend, right? You know, you're going to buy yourself a latte, you know, because like you're having a rough day and you need a little caffeine. What would it look like, you know, to pay it forward and gift a latte to the person behind you? Just like drop five bucks. Yeah. Again, we don't predict that that's going to matter for our happiness as much as doing for the self, but the evidence suggests that it really does. So, you know, again, next time you're trying to treat yourself, ask what it would look like to you know, treat somebody else instead or to treat somebody else on the side of treating yeah. yourself. And that the research really shows that it will have much more of an impact than doing for yourself. That's awesome. Lori, thank you for sharing those three hacks. Like incredibly helpful. I'm curious, what do you think is a common thread for some of the happiest people in the world? What do they have in common? Yeah. I mean, they're definitely very social, as we mentioned. I I think another thing that we haven't talked about is that, um, you know, they have the thought patterns that are kind of kind to themselves. Mm. Um, I think this is another thing a lot of people in their 20s struggle with is that, you know, it's a time of making goals, making plans. And sometimes we assume that, you know, the best way to make those plans and to achieve those goals is to like scream at ourselves in our head, right? It's like the sort of drill sergeant mode of like, you know, getting ourselves to do things. Um, But all the evidence suggests that that just simply doesn't work, that we'd be better off engaging um, in in practices of like Mm. self-compassion or self-kindness, by by which I mean talking to yourself in a way that like assumes you're a human, you know, assumes that failure is just part of life and that's how you grow and it's okay to not be perfect. Um, Kind of just talking to yourself like the way you talk to a friend. and I think that the, the talk to yourself like you talk to a friend is a good way to think about it. Because I think sometimes if we think if we get out of drill sergeant mode with ourselves, we're going to like let ourselves off the hook or we're going to mm-hmm. be self-indulgent. Right. Yeah. But we don't do that with our good friends. Like if your friend is like if your best friend is like really messing up, you kind of let her know about it. But maybe yeah. not. You wouldn't scream at her and be like, you suck. Why do you always do? You'd be like 
you know, maybe that thing you were doing is a thing you need to rethink, you know, maybe this is a spot, you know, with kindness, with care, with curiosity, you would kind of approach the subject, but, but we tend not to use that same approach with ourselves. Right. And, Yeah. and that's not self-indulgent, like to talk that way. That's like, you know, being a good parent and really taking care of yourself with, with kindness. Um, and so I think a lot of people in their 20s would be a lot happier and also would honestly get more done if they could speak to themselves in, in, in forms of self-talk that were a little bit kinder to themselves. Mm, this is awesome. I know a lot of my friends right now are we're just struggling with this. Um, it can be so easy to get into the habit of just being mean to yourself. I mean, I I pause and I hear how I speak to myself and I'm like, really, Scott? Like, that's not helping anyone. That's not helping you. That's not helping how you show up. And then that energy, you know, it does affect how you treat other people. It can. Yeah, no, I think, you know, Yeah. one of the big, one of the biggest benefits of engaging in self-compassion is that you become compassionate more generally, right? Like if you talk to yourself with kindness, it makes it easier to talk to your coworkers with kindness and your, you know, your toddlers with kindness Mm. and your partners with kindness and your friends with kindness. So it's, it's a way to kind of boost your compassion muscles um, generally, but, but often it's hardest to talk to us or to, to talk to ourselves with kindness. We can be completely kind to our coworkers and our good friends and just be like, you know, a real raging meanie to like ourselves and our self-talk. So it's often the self-talk we need to work on, not the like compassion to others. I I could not agree more for sure. I think it starts with you and starting with the you aspect. How do you think 20 somethings year old year olds can kind of look internally and become more aware of their emotions and what's going on inside? Like how can 20 something year olds start to spot positive versus negative emotions and go into solution mode rather than staying in this fight or flight anxiety mode? Yeah, well, I think, you know, again, one of our intuitions is that the the right thing to do, especially when we're experiencing negative emotions, is to Yeah. like squash them down, right? Um, but th there's lots of research showing that this simply doesn't work. Um, you know, I think what the social science shows is that like squashing your emotions down is kind of like when you're a kid in a pool and you're like the beach ball and you're like trying to stuff it under Yeah. the water and you can like hold it down for a little bit, but eventually it's going to like fly out, right? And it's, it just doesn't work that way. And so I think recognizing that squashing your emotions doesn't work gives you one path out, which is that you just need to find ways to allow your emotions and deal with them. Um, you don't have to love them, but you, you kind of have to figure out a way to hang out with them. Um, you know, I, I often tell my students that like the way to deal with your negative emotions is kind of like, you know, if you like live in the suburbs and there's like the nosy neighbor who comes by and like chats with you and you're like going out to your car, it's like, Yeah. you know, you're not going to kick them out or be mean to them, but like you just kind of allow, or the, you know, the kind of weird person at the coffee shop who like, you know, tries to chat with you in the And morning. you just It's don't like, want to. but you're not like, you're not like, get away <laughs> from me or like, no. you like shove them in the face or shove them down. You just like, you just put up with it for a little bit and then it's over Yeah. and it's fine. Right. And so I think this is what we need to remember that we can do with our negative emotions. Mm. Right. Um, first, we need to recognize what they are. And I think that that's an important step is to, when you notice like, oh, I'm just like feeling frazzled or there's a lot, like take two minutes to just sit down and be like, okay, what's going on? Is this overwhelm? Is this frustration? Is this sadness? Is this anger? Is this jealousy? Is this loneliness? Is this boredom? Right. Like I think oftentimes we, we so avoid our emotions that we don't even take the time to recognize what we're dealing with. And if we don't know what we're dealing with, we don't know how to solve it. Like the solution when you're feeling overwhelmed is totally different than the solution when you're feeling lonely. Right. Um, 
And I, I like using this phrase like finding the solutions because ultimately, like evolutionarily speaking, that's why we have these negative emotions. Like they're kind of like a signal. They're like, you know, the the ding that goes off on your microwave when you're like yeah. popcorn's done, right? Like yeah. it's telling you like, hey, something, like do something. Like I think we don't see them as signals, but when we take time to recognize our, our emotions, like sit with them and allow them to be there, we can kind of, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, like go into problem solving mode, right? We yeah. can figure out, okay, what do I need? given this emotion. I think we forget that when we don't do that process, when we ignore our emotions and just hope they'll go away, you know, we wind up kind of, you know, it's like the popcorn's going to burn, right? You know, totally. want to like, you want to listen to the signals so that you can take action while you still have time. Um, and I think with a lot of our negative emotions, if we don't take action, those things we're facing are going to get worse. Absolutely. What are some of the ways that you think we can sit with our emotions? I think sometimes people when they hear that, they may think, oh, I really just have to like sit down and sit with it. Like, yeah. And it, it, it sounds stupid, <laughs> but like literally sitting down and sitting yeah. is okay. a practice that works. Yeah. And like, so, um, you know, it's often helpful to have like a little acronym or like steps to go through and stuff. And one of my favorite um, steps for dealing with negative emotions comes from the meditation teacher, Tara Brock. Um, Love she her. Yes, yeah, she's great. So she has this meditation practice that you might have heard of already called RAIN, um, mm -hmm. which stands for recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. So she says, literally, if you notice that you're feeling a negative emotion, you get a mean like slack me slack message from a colleague or like you see some news that's making you feel like yeah like and so you say ah just sit down and just like for three minutes do a meditation practice right mm -hmm. where you first start with this step of r which is to recognize and and that's the process we were just talking about like what is it is it sad that activated your boredom like like you know is it frustration anxiety like just like use your words sometimes any of your who, who are parents out there like really young kids might have heard this phrase like use your words like we tell yeah. us to, like little toddlers um but do that for yourself right like really you know get like the source the you know like sat mm -hmm. word on it like just try to figure out what you're dealing with right and then you do the step of the a which is to allow and that's mm -hmm. kind of the other step we were just talking about you say I'm not gonna run away from this i'm just i don't have to love this but i'm just gonna sit with this for a second mm -hmm. um, but the key is you don't just sit there you give your brain something to do while you're allowing yeah. this emotion to be there yeah. and that's the i step investigate um, with interest to care, like a lot of self-compassion, like what does this emotion feel like in my body? Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe it's making your chest tight or your brow furrow. Maybe, maybe it's making you realize that you really want to do something. Like I want to check my email or I want to have a drink or like whatever. Yeah. Like, don't act on it, but just like, huh, when I get anxious, when I get sad, when I get frustrated, mm -hmm. this is my body's go-to reaction. And the key about the investigation step, which is cool, is that the, the data really suggests that emotions are kind of like a wave. Like they, they will crest and go up a little bit when you first start feeling them, but eventually they're just going to run their course. And often it's surprising, but they can run their course in as little as like five to 12 minutes. Like if wow. you just don't run away from them and hang out with them and sit there. And mm -hmm. so that's the I step, but you don't stop there. You stop with the last step, which is N, nurture, which is like, how do you take care of yourself? Negative emotions don't feel good. You just sat through it. That sucked. Good job. But like, what can you take off your plate? Can you call a friend? Can you do something to really genuinely nurture yourself? Mm. Given that? Um, there's evidence that practices like RAIN can reduce negative emotions and burnout in first responders and palliative care workers. Like it's a really powerful technique for people who deal with negative emotions yeah. on the job all the time. So it can be a powerful technique to bring in when you're like, just supposed to sit with it, but like giving yourself like, you know, steps how when to. you're sitting with it, how to can be so helpful. Yeah. I, I think that's really cool. And also for me, 
that's something that I'm going to absolutely incorporate more into my life. But whenever I'm in a blue mood or feeling down, I kind of have a list of activities or things that I do that I know truly 100% of the time after I do these things, I will feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Like I know it's me going to the ocean, moving my body, talking to my mom. If I do those three things, I I will feel better. There's no doubt. Yeah. And, and so, I love the idea yeah. of having that list sort of at the ready because mm. I think, again, our intuition, you know, I know my intuition when I'm feeling down is not move my body. It's not like, oh, I'll just go do a hard yoga class. It's like, no, I'm going to plop. I'm going to eat, you know, something disgu- that'll make me feel yeah. disgusting or, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, like it's not to get social connection with somebody I care about. Like totally. my mom. It's like, yeah. you know, watch crappy Netflix by myself. See, I love hours, that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but but the yeah. list is helpful because like you see it and you're like, oh, this is my go-to, right? Yeah. Um, and and those are great. You know, all the things you mentioned are things that are, you know, really good mm. for our happiness. Like in, in moving your body, exercise is such a powerful hack for happiness. A half hour of cardio a day is as effective in some meta-analyses as taking a, an anti-depression prescription Damn. for reducing depression, right? We forget it can be such a hack for our minds. You know, we've already talked about the benefits of social connection. Oh my gosh. And going back to the point of social connection, just being totally transparent with you all. You know, during COVID when it was really bad, I probably didn't see my friends for months, like besides my boyfriend that I had during that time. And I'm I'm pretty extroverted. Um, so social connection is extremely important for me as it is for everyone. But I was extremely, extremely depressed. Um, and then of course, you know, went on an antidepressant and felt better due to that. But I swear to God, exercise, like it, it is medicine and the endorphins that you get from that kind of the inspiration, energy, and motivation to conquer your day. It, it It's for sure. It's a medicine. It's amazing. And it's, it's yeah. medicine that, that, that works for a while. Like, so that, you know, researchers look at, you know, you exercise say 9am on Monday and you get like kind of a little happiness boost. The question is like, how long does that well-being boost last if you hadn't done the exercise? Totally. And you can come back like Tuesday at 1 p.m. if you exercise Monday at 9 a.m. and still see a boost in happiness. So it lasts for longer than 24 hours, this small but significant boost. So it's a way to like, you know, work out in the morning. It's a way to invest in your like tomorrow morning self just by the act of doing that. It's amazing. Lori, I cannot believe we're already at the end of today's episode. (laughs) I want to respect your time because I know you're busy, busy. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to welcome you to the end of today's episode called Syllabus Steps. This Mm -hmm. is very, very you know, you're so used to this. So excited yeah. that you're that you're on this. Um, but really, this is a time for us to recap what we've learned from this mini happiness lab on regardless and how we can actually integrate your insight into our lives. So again, I know you've mentioned a couple ex- of extremely helpful, helpful resources, practices like RAIN, but if we could just quickly sum up for everyone any additional tools, books, resources, of course, your podcast that are crucial in us to unlock unlocking sustainable happiness, regardless of the noise, regardless of unhappy people, adversities, how can we really invest in our future selves and happiness as 20-somethings? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, remembering that our intuitions are wrong, right? That we really, you really need some help. You really need some data is powerful. Yeah. Um, you know, the Happiness Lab, my podcast has all kinds of great tips. In fact, in the new year, we're doing um, a new series on how to listen better to your inner voice and how to shut out the noise. So I think especially important for 20-somethings. Um, you know, in terms of fantastic resources, um, I think, you know, there's so many of them. I think in terms of thinking of like social connection and how to protect mm-hmm. it, especially 
how to protect it from using technology, which should be for social, I mean, social media should be for social stuff, but it's often not. Um, highly recommend uh, the journalist Catherine Price's book, mm -hmm. um, How to Break Up with Your Phone, where she argues we don't really need to break up with our phone, but we should take it to sort of couples counseling a little bit. Yep. Um, and just another great resource, especially if the part about self-compassion and kind of being kind to yourself resonated with you, um, highly recommend checking out Kristen Neff's book, um, just called Self-Compassion. Um, she has a, has a second book out called Fierce Self-Compassion, where she argues, you know, that if you really want to take care of yourself, set boundaries and kind of be the badass that you want to be, it really comes from not screaming at yourself, but actually engaging in self-compassion. That's actually one of my favorite books ever. It's awesome. on my, cool. it's on my, um, my little shelf, shelf right now. Nice. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yay. And last question for you to bring it back to regardless, Lori, I'm going to ask you personally, it's fill in the blank. So regardless of blank, I am blank. Yeah. Um, I would say, uh, you know, regardless of my intuitions, mm -hmm. I am capable of being happy. I love that. Okay. I, I'm just, I'm so excited to share this again with my following. Um, we need it. I just really, really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and being you and just being present with me here today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to Regardless. I hope you've learned something from this month's soul conversation and will apply it to your very own syllabus. Join me next month for a new guest, a new tool, and a new perspective. If you found value in this podcast, please empower your tribe by sharing, leaving a comment, review, and or subscribe. Catch new episodes on the second and fourth week of every month on all major audio podcast platforms. For more information about my life and updates about the podcast, head to my Instagram at Skylar Sorkin and at Regardless the Pod. Thank you for tuning into Regardless. Thank you for being vulnerable and talking about the uncomfortable. Now go kick some ass.